Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I am Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and your co-host for the Pacific Century. And my co-host, John Yu, is somewhere in the skies, I believe, over the Atlantic right now. As soon as Europe opened up, John took the first opportunity to get back on the international cocktail circuit. He is coming back, I think, from Italy. We'll find out next time. But once again... It's John's loss because we have an extraordinary guest today. Uh, it is a, a great pleasure and a privilege to welcome to the show John Mearsheimer. Um, for those of you who, who listen to the show, really, John needs no introduction, uh, but we will give him one nonetheless. He is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, where he's taught since 1982. Uh, John, something that some of you may not know, graduated from West Point in 1970 and then served five years as an officer in the U.S. Air Force. John, we may have to ask you about that that shift. Uh, He started graduate school in political science at Cornell, received his Ph.D. in 1980, was in the think tank world at the Brookings Institution, at Harvard Center for International Affairs, and also at the Council on Foreign Relations. Mostly, of course, you know John because of his extraordinary uh, academic work, including the books Conventional Deterrence, uh, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, which I know so most of you read, uh, and most recently, uh, The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Reality. This is in addition to numerous articles that he's written, uh, and of course, the awards that he has received, including uh, being elected a, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and last year, the James Madison Award, which is given once every three years by the American Political Science Association to an American political scientist who has made a distinguished scholarly contribution to political science. So, John, congratulations on your award, and welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you very much for your kind words, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome you because uh, there is a lot of talk and a lot of buzz about one of your most recent articles, and that's really uh, what we'd like to focus on today, but to then use it to expand into a broad conversation about America and China. But the article is in Foreign Affairs. It's in the, um, the current issue, and it is entitled The Inevitable Rivalry. America, China, and the tragedy of great power politics. So building off of obviously the work that you've done uh, on the subject, but for our purposes, you zero in on the U.S.-China relationship and quite frankly, some of the shibboleths and some of the unmet expectations of that relationship. But I want to start off, if I can, with a rather provocative quote that you have in the article where you state That engagement with China, the the Kissinger, Nixon, Carter, Brzezinski policy started in the 1970s, engagement may have been the worst strategic blunder any country has made in recent history. There is no comparable example of a great power actively fostering the rise of a peer competitor. Do you want to walk that back? Do you think that's too harsh? No. No. And 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 why not? What? Wh- why? Why did this blunder happen? I mean, how how can we explain it? Well, it didn't start with Nixon and Kissinger. I think that Nixon and Kissinger, um, and, and uh, then uh, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Reagan, and 
the early George H.W. Bush were smart to pursue engagement with China. In, in, in a sense, it made uh, good strategic sense to help China grow economically when it was our ally against the Soviet Union during the Cold War, because the more powerful that China was, uh, the better able it would be to help contain the Soviet Union, okay? But what happens, as you know, is in 1989, the Cold War ends, and we no longer need the Chinese to help contain the Soviet Union. So the question at that point is, how do we think about China? And what the United States decides to do uh, over the next four administrations, this is George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, is to pursue a policy of engagement, which is designed to help China grow economically. So it's very important to understand that we took this country that in 1990 had 4.7 times as many people as us, and we helped it grow into an economic juggernaut. We, in a sense, created a peer competitor. We put an end to unipolarity, the ideal structural situation a state can face in the international system. What could be better than being the unipol? But by turning China into a Goliath, we put an end to unipolarity. And we did this based on the foolish policy of engagement. Now, what is engagement? Engagement basically said that if we made China rich, if we made it prosperous, and we integrated it into the open international economy that we had created during the Cold War, and we integrated it into institutions like the WTO, that China would become, quote unquote, a responsible stakeholder. And of course, it would eventually become a democracy, and we would all live happily ever after. Well, we helped China grow into a Goliath for sure, but we're not living happily ever after because China is not a democracy, number one. But even if it was a democracy, China is a peer competitor and it is bent on challenging the United States, both economically and geopolitically. And this is why we are, in effect, in a new Cold War. So obviously you're coming at this from a realist paradigm uh, and, and some of the issues that you or some of the uh, the, the data that you uh, started with talking about the size of population and then the potential of national uh, national wealth. Uh, and of course, there was actually a report today. I don't know if you saw that China uh, now outstrips the United States in national wealth that it and that, and that it accrued 50 percent of the growth in national wealth over the past decade. And the United States accrued just 22 percent so that on on the balance, they now have 120 trillion or something in national wealth. We only have 90 million. These are all very classical, uh, realist presumptions about what produces national power, going back to Morgenthau and the like. I think the question that many would have then is, why did we assume or those who were in charge of the policy, why did they assume that by making China wealthier, bringing it into the international community, it would norm, or as we used to call, converge with us? Well, I think it's largely because in the wake of the Cold War, we were infected with liberal triumphalism. Uh, this is reflected in Frank Fukuyama's very famous 1989 essay, The End of History. 
the United States believed that it had fought and defeated fascism in the first half of the 20th century, communism in the second half of the 20th century, and the future was a planet filled with liberal democracies. Uh, in this story, it was only a matter of time because uh, before uh, China and Russia and all sorts of other countries became liberal democracies. And of course, along with this belief was the belief that liberal democracies don't fight against each other. So this was going to be a very peaceful world. I think what Fukuyama did in that famous article was he captured the zeitgeist at the time. Uh, I think what happened here is that people believed that great power politics, basic realpolitik logic, had been relegated to the dustbin of history. And we were in a new world. And therefore, the United States didn't have to worry about the balance of power. And if China grew really powerful and became a democracy and became a responsible stakeholder in an American-led international order, uh, we would all live happily ever after. That, that was the basic operating assumption inside uh, the foreign policy elite in the United States, starting in the early 1990s and really running up uh, till the late 2010s. It's really when Donald Trump comes into the White House in January 2017 that the policy begins to change. Can I, can I push you a little bit? On that, which is to ask, as as you look at it uh, as a, you know, a long term student of political science, and and in that sense, sort of a historian, um, why would a policy elite that successfully had just concluded a four decade Cold War and a policy of what, whether you want to call it containment or, or or whatever term you prefer, but that was based on very realist presumptions, why would they jettison that? Was it Shouldn't the lesson they have learned from those 40 years been that this is what works? In other words, why would they make the assumption? And, I, and I, obviously, we all know the Frank Fukuyama article, but why would they make the assumption that what had worked for nearly half a century suddenly is to be dropped? Does it say more about something in American DNA? Does it talk about the foolishness of the elites? Does it talk about the fact that like Britain after World War II, they may have been exhausted? How do you explain doing something that you decades of evidence had just shown you you should not do? Well, it, it was a function of two factors. One was the fact that the United States is a profoundly liberal country. It's what makes America, in my opinion, a wonderful country to live in. It, it is thoroughly liberal. Um, and unsurprisingly, there is this powerful liberal impulse on the foreign policy front. The second point, and it's related to the first point, is that when you're in a unipolar world, by definition, you have no great power competition. So realism doesn't really matter very much. If you're in the Cold War and you have the Soviet Union, or you're in the present system with two great powers, Russia and China, great power politics is alive and well, by definition, and realism is alive and well. So for the first time in contemporary history, certainly for the first time in American history, in 1990, the United States found itself in a unipolar world. And it didn't have to worry about realist calculations. This, coupled with the fact that we had this exceedingly powerful liberal impulse, I believe is what allowed us uh, to embrace 
engagement with the fervor that we did. And, and to march, you know, over, you know, probably close to a 30-year period uh, forward with a policy that took this country that had 4.7 times as many people as the United States and helped it grow into an economic Goliath and, in effect, create a peer competitor. We've never seen anything like this in world history. It's truly remarkable. And you do not want to understand we are in deep trouble now. Competing with China is going to be a very difficult task. So before we turn to that, because we do want to you know, try to look forward and, and get to some of your prescriptions. Um, let, me, let me ask you just a little bit more about the about the engagement side. Now, you mentioned, of course, that it was a viable, you felt it was a viable policy through the Cold War, meaning we were, whatever term you want to use, triangulating uh, or balancing against Russia with, with China. Of course, we also used Japan, we used the European Union, there was Kissinger's old pentapolar world concept. Um, and you, you mentioned starting off that uh, after the Cold War, we should have dropped it. Um, is there a more a more uh, detailed point at which you would say we should have understood that what we were doing was counter to our interests? Some might have said 1989 and and Tiananmen Square that y- we are definitely not going to get a China that is liberalizing in any meaningful way, and therefore the potential for for conflict between us is is certainly endemic and, and will stay there. Um, some might say 2001 with the WTO, uh, which sort of just gave China the keys to the kingdom, opened up every market to China. Is there, you know, to say after the Cold War is fine, but where where was the moment where we didn't do our due diligence and we should have said, you know what, this is not going the way we want. Do you have one in mind? Well, I couldn't put a precise date on it, but it's clearly the late 1990s. The two key decisions that we make that really propel Chinese growth forward are, number one, uh, giving them permanent most favored nation trading status, permanent most favored nation trading status in the year 2000. And then in 2001, admitting them to the WTO. Those two events really mattered greatly. I think one could argue in the early 1990s, uh, we did not have much evidence that China was going to grow by leaps and bounds um, over the next 30 years. And therefore, uh, one could understand why we didn't uh, get tough with the Chinese economically in the early 1990s. You can make that argument. But I think by the late 1990s, it was clear that the Chinese economy was roaring ahead. It was growing by leaps and bounds. And if anything, that was the time uh, to move to slow it down. Uh, I would have favored slowing it down earlier. But I think by the late 1990s, uh, before it was given permanent most favored nation trading status and before it was admitted into the WTO, we should have done a 180 degree turn in terms of our policy. And yet for the China policy community and the Asia watchers, what the, the era that you're talking about is the sort of the height of the what was called the reform and opening up era, right? It was Deng Xiaoping followed by Jiang Zemin. There were arguments, of course, that we were beginning to see the emergence of pluralism in China. Uh, there was, there was, and I think it, w- it was real, a uh, a 
uh, separation to some degree between the party and the government. Uh, that, that's gone now. We can get to that. But there was some degree of separation of the party and the government and some development of, of civil society. So looking at it from your perspective and, and, and a realist perspective, which is simply to to, I mean, simply, but which is to to look at the ways in which national power can develop and then and then put it into an anarchic international system uh, wasn't tracking with how the 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 you know you almost if you if you want to say the 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 quantitative or the qualitative the the area studies people were trying to say look this is how China's developing and so we have to double down on engagement which as every president told us was going to continue to lead to a more liberal China. How do, how do you reconcile, uh, as you look at the policymaking process, those two different views? Because clearly the latter one out and not the former, the former being your position. Well, just a couple of points on this. One is it's important to emphasize that it was not just the experts on China or people who had business interests in China who were making this argument that China was on the right path. It included President Clinton in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and candidate George W. Bush, as well as President George W. Bush. It's very important to understand that during the 2000 presidential campaign, candidate Bush helped, he explicitly helped President Bush get uh, President Clinton, excuse me, get permanent most favored nation trading status for China. And then when candidate Bush became President Bush in January 2001, later that year, he ushered China into the WTO. So there is remarkably little difference between Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush in terms of how they dealt with China. And both firmly embraced engagement. And both administrations, the Clinton administration and the George W. Bush administration, were filled with people who embraced engagement. Second point I'd make to you on this. For people who favored engagement, it mattered whether China became a democracy or not, or a responsible stakeholder. They thought that if that happened, everything would have worked out fine. I don't care whether China was a democracy, a fascist state, an authoritarian state, or a communist state. My point has always been that any time a country accumulates huge amounts of power, it throws its weight around. And I always remind people, the United States of America is a paradigmatic liberal democracy, and it behaves in ruthless ways on the world stage. It is a great power. And I believe that if China was a democracy, it would behave no differently than it behaves as an authoritarian state. So I disagreed with the foreign policy establishment almost across the board on that very point throughout uh, the post-Cold War period. Uh, but the fact is, it didn't turn into a democracy or a responsible stakeholder. Uh, so what happened is that people like President Clinton and President George W. Bush, who I believe had noble intentions, these were not evil people, um, to quote Talleyrand, this was worse than a crime. It was a blunder. Before we get to the um, just how deep trouble we are in, a little bit more on, on this, do you, do you think it makes 
any difference that China is not is as powerful as it is and not a liberal state. Meaning if the predictions of those who had thought it would liberalize to some degree, not look like the United States, but it would liberalize to some degree, and some thought it might go farther than that, would that make managing that this is the new buzzword, right? Managing the competition. I, I, you know, you compete in a competition. You don't manage a competition, but that's the new buzzword is managing or the buzz phrase is managing the competition. Would it be easier to manage the competition if China had indeed liberalized? Meaning, are we in a worse position now because it's not a democracy? I don't think so. Uh, and you can make an argument that we'd be in a worse position if it were a democracy. And the reason is that nationalism is a potent force in China. And I believe one of the problems that Chinese leaders are likely to have, I'm not saying it's for certain, but one of the problems that Chinese leaders are likely to have moving forward is keeping a cap on nationalism. Uh, I believe at certain points in, in the future, uh, the Chinese public uh, which views the Japanese and the Americans as the devil incarnate, uh, will put significant pressure uh, on uh, Chinese leaders to uh, use force to resolve certain uh, problems. And uh, you want a very powerful leader up on top who can keep a lid on that nationalism. And one could make an argument that in an authoritarian system, uh, that's more likely to be the case than in a liberal democracy or just a democracy where the leader has to pay much more attention to the political forces from below. Uh, so I don't, uh, uh, I don't think the fact that China is an authoritarian state uh, is going to matter that much other than on that front. So let's talk about how much trouble we're in. You, you write in the foreign affairs piece that uh, we are locked in what can only be called a new Cold War, an intense security competition that touches on every dimension of the relationship. Um, when did this become a securitized problem? Meaning a lot of people would probably have accepted your contention um, even a few years ago that we were locked in a, in a very intense economic competition, uh, a political competition. I think over the past couple of years, it's become clear that it is also an ideological competition. I want to get to that because you downplay uh, ideology and in your view, it's not as important a factor. So I'd like to come to that. But you mentioned it's an, you privilege that it's an intense security competition, yet we haven't fought with China yet. We, we haven't had a clash. Um, they, they have, they've threatened, but hasn't, haven't taken over disputed territories. We talk about the South China Sea, of course. So, so is it actually a security competition? And if so, when did it become a security competition? Two points. One, I distinguish between security competitions, intense security competitions, and war. You want to remember the Cold War with the Soviet Union was an intense security competition. It never became a hot war. That's why we called it the Cold War. So what we have here with China is an emerging security competition or Cold War, and it affects every dimension of the relationship, ideological, economic, political, and so forth and so on. And when you talk about the fact that many people are interested in managing the conflict, what they want to manage is the 
security competition so as to make sure it doesn't become a hot war. Okay, that's sort of uh, what's going on here. Uh, and, so would you would you so would you say though that the security competition? Where is the 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 the, the level? where it becomes a security competition, right? We, we talked about how small the PLA used to be. It was a 1950s era force, but it's had good capabilities for a while. And yet it still didn't seem to challenge where in your view, is there a particular point at which we should have been thinking this is going to become the type of security competition that you talked about? Cause we were, everyone would say, look, you know, the United States has what 12 times budget of all other nations put together. That's no longer the case with China. Uh, but, but it was dismissed over and over that China could pose any significant security threat to the U.S. Those days are gone. So where where was that moment when policymakers should have zeroed in? Because that might have changed the, the broader policy. Well, there's the question of when they should have and when they did. In my story, they should have been alert to this problem uh, in the 1990s. But uh, when they did is the more interesting question. And I think in the 2010s, the early 2010s, uh, there were hints that the Chinese were growing very powerful and, go and going to behave pr provocatively. And this is why Hillary Clinton in 2011 enunciated the pivot to Asia which the Chinese immediately interpreted as America switching from engagement to containment. But in fact, the pivot to Asia never really it, uh, amounted to much. And, and we did not move uh, to containment. The real change took place in 2017 when Trump became president. Uh, and if you had to sort of pinpoint the date, I would point to 2017, although it's hard to say one particular year is critical because we were marching in that direction before 2017. But I put the date at 2017. Now, a lot of people like to say that the new Cold War is a result of Donald Trump because he moved. He, there's no question. Trump, during the campaign in 2016, ran explicitly against engagement. And there's no question that after he became president, he flushed engagement down the toilet bowl and embraced a containment policy. But with regard to what is going on here, it's not so much Trump as it is the fact that the system by 2017, when he moved into the White House, had morphed from unipolarity to multipolarity. China had grown so powerful and had developed so much military capability by 2017. And of course, Putin had brought the Russians back from the dead. You remember the year 2000, 2005, Russia was not even considered a great power. It was just so weak, so devastated by the collapse of the Soviet Union. But by 2017, you could speak uh, in convincing ways about an emerging multipolar system. And if you look at the Trump administration's initial flurry of documents on national security, they talk about operating in a multipolar world. Before Trump moved into the White House, we talked almost exclusively in terms of living or operating in unipolarity, right? 
So by 2017, everybody understands, I think, or almost everybody understands that the balance of power has shifted. And of course, the Chinese are building military capability. They're throwing their weight around at that point in time in the South China Sea. Remember, building those small islands, right? They're talking more loudly than ever about Taiwan, about the Diao or Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea and controlling the South China Sea. Uh, so when the Trump administration emphasizes the importance of containing China, it resonates with lots of people because this is not the China of 2000 or 1995 or 1990. It has grown much more powerful. It is throwing its weight around. And more generally, we're no longer in a unipolar world. We're in a multipolar world, and China has not turned out to be the responsible stakeholder that we, meaning the foreign policy establishment, anticipated that it would be. So how do you respond to those who say, look, uh, grant all of that, but it's simply what rising powers do, and China has every right to uh, to be able to ensure the safety of its shipping through from the Middle East through the Indian Ocean through the the critical straits Straits of Malacca for example and up into the South and East China Seas that uh, it it finds itself with an un certain relationship with Russia, which is centuries old on its north, with a Japan that it will never really reconcile with on its east, with India on its west, and of course you got the United States. And so really, the argument goes, what China's doing is understandable, and, and it's what all rising powers do. And therefore, if we understand that it is not inherently aggressive, uh, or or threatening, but it is simply trying to ensure its own security, we will avoid stumbling into the type of, of security trap that has doomed other relationships. What What's your response to that argument that they're just like us, they're doing everything that we do? I think there's no question that what they're doing makes perfect sense from their point of view. And as I say in the piece, they are basically imitating us. Uh, if you, Misha, or me, John, was playing their hand, if we were in charge in Beijing, we would be interested in dominating Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. And we would be interested in developing power projection capability to challenge the United States around the globe to protect our sea lines of communication and so forth and so on. This is perfectly understandable. And of course, this is why I said from the very beginning that if you turn China into a Goliath, it would behave much the way it is behaving. It would, in effect, imitate the United States. It's very hard for most Americans to accept this argument because they believe there's a difference between liberal democracies and authoritarian states. And they believe we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. In the view of most Americans, we never do anything wrong. And it's always the other side that is behaving because of malign motives. And I think that's simply not the case here. The Chinese are concerned with their security, just as the United States is concerned with its security. And both countries understand full well that the best outcome is one in which you dominate your region of the world. But the second part of the story is 
You want to make sure nobody else dominates their region of the world. Therefore, it's very important to understand that it is in the American national interest to make sure that China does not dominate Asia. Although it's in China's interest to make sure it dominates Asia. And this creates an inevitable conflict. And this is why I do disagree with you when you say that, you know, if we understood the basic logics that were motivating both sides, uh, we could go, you know, a long way towards ameliorating the competition. I actually don't believe that. I, I think an intense competition is just baked into this relationship. It's baked into international politics. When a state becomes powerful, what it wants to do is it wants to dominate its region. And it wants to do that for, for good strategic reasons. Uh, and there's nothing you can do uh, to really prevent the Chinese from going down that road. I know, you know, there are a number of people who argue we should allow China to have Taiwan and accept the fact that they dominate they will dominate the South China Sea. In other words, give up on Taiwan and give up on the South China Sea. And then the Chinese will be happy and we'll all live happily ever after. That's not my understanding of how international politics works. Great powers have voracious appetites and the appetite grows with the eating. And uh, you give them Taiwan and the South China Sea, you don't think they're going to be knocking on the door in the East China Sea? You don't think they're going to be interested in pushing the Americans out beyond the first island chain and then out beyond the second island chain? I can tell you, if I was running Chinese foreign policy, that's what I'd do. I'd be looking for weakness. And any evidence that the Americans were not willing to fight over Taiwan on the South China Sea would just, you know, give me uh, increased interest in you know, pushing hard in other areas. Just to clarify, um, the the hypothetical that I gave you uh, is an argument that's out there. Certainly not one that that I would subscribe to. That you know, yeah. it's it's understandable and we we can avoid uh, because I I certainly um, and it and it's a debate and the, the debate that needs to be had. I certainly come down on the realist side uh, with you, but I wanted to to draw you out on what is often stated as as one of the arguments, and I'd like to draw you out on one on another issue, um, which is uh, that that of ideology. And, and you write that um, communism matters even less in contemporary China than it did in the Soviet Union, uh, China, which is best understood as an authoritarian state. That embraces capitalism. Um, there's there's a lot of of interesting work that's being done on the revitalization of Marxist thought under Xi Jinping. Uh, state documents that that are very clear about uh, the the in, incompatibility of the Chinese model in China with Western liberal notions, uh, with um, a reaffirmation of of Leninist models of control uh, that. She is a committed communist. Um, and do you think this this doesn't matter much or you don't believe in it? No, I don't believe that. Uh, just a couple points. First of all, they're not embracing liberalism. But as you well know, there are many alternatives to liberalism besides communism. You could be a fascist state, an authoritarian state, uh, and so forth and so on. I think this is... Uh, an authoritarian state par excellence. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, I think it's also a Leninist state in the sense that 
there is one person at the top who is in firm control. Uh, to say someone believes that we need to create a Leninist state is in my lexicon uh, the equivalent of saying we need a great leader uh, at the top who can keep everybody under control. And Xi Jinping certainly fits uh, in that category. Uh, with regard to his resurrection of Marx and Lenin and Mao and Deng and so forth and so on, uh, I just think that he's trying to create the impression that he's part of a great lineage, uh, that he, he belongs in the communist hall of fame, so to speak. And uh, But if you look at how this country operates, right, it, 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 it operates as a capitalist society. Uh, uh, it's really, truly remarkable. I'm hoping that his Leninist-like tendencies get in the way of that economy working efficiently. And as a result of his Lenin, this is Xi Jinping's Leninist tendencies, the Chinese economy slows down in terms of its growth rate. That would be wonderful. But nevertheless, everything that we have seen in that country uh, at least since the early 1990s, uh, looks like, uh, you know, authoritarianism married to capitalism to me. Uh, and the problem we face is the Chinese are very good capitalists. Uh, all you have to do is go to Huawei headquarters and spend a day or two just walking around Huawei headquarters. And you just sort of say to yourself, wow, uh, these are serious competitors. Uh, these are not people that we're going to defeat easily. This is not the Soviet Union. So you, you write near the end of the piece that at best, this rivalry can be managed in the hope of avoiding a war. Um, what do we need to do to maintain that capability of avoiding a war? Is it hypersonics? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it 5G or 6G? What is it specifically that you think, as you're talking again about this, the, the, uh, the ultimate, the fundamental importance of economic power, uh, and, and yet we're moving into a new generation of, of different types of technologies, different types of, of approaches to industrial organization. What is it that we need to do in order to have the, 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 the national strength translated into military strength, let's leave aside political will, in order to be credibly able to avoid that war. But let me divide your question up into two parts. One is what do we do? What do we need to do to maintain national strength, to maintain a relative advantage over uh, uh, over China uh, in, in terms of just sort of raw power? And then what do we do? What do we have to do to manage the conflict so that we don't end up in a hot war? Um, I think with regard to the first issue, uh, in, in terms of the overall balance of power between the two sides, it is absolutely essential that we dominate uh, with new technologies, that we are on the cutting edge of sophisticated technologies, things like artificial intelligence, chips, quantum computing, uh, the usual litany of sophisticated technologies that are now being developed. We, of course, once completely dominated 
those technologies. We complete, were completely dominant when it came to dom developing those technologies, and the Chinese weren't even players. They're now threatening to compete with us and maybe even run us off the table in terms of a few of those technologies. We have got to go to enormous lengths to make sure that that does not happen. Uh, with regard to managing the conflict so that it doesn't turn into a hot war, there I think you get into more military-related questions. Um, and my view is that, you know, you want to care greatly about South China Sea, Taiwan, and the East China Sea. Uh, those are the three key flashpoints for us. Uh, we can't do much about the India-China border, which is another flashpoint. Uh, but I think what we want to do is maintain formidable conventional forces in East Asia. Uh, we want to be able to fight conflicts over the South China Sea, Taiwan, and the East China Sea, not necessarily to win those conflicts. You read the newspapers these days, and lots of people say the United States can't win a war over Taiwan. Uh, I'm not sure I believe that, although it's very hard to define what winning means in these circumstances. But let's leave that aside. The fact is to provide lots of conventional deterrence. You don't necessarily have to win, although that helps. But if you can stalemate the other side, prevent the other side from winning and turn the war into a bloody slugging match, that provides a huge amount of deterrence. And furthermore, even if the other side can ultimately win the war, we're talking about a conventional war here, if it has to pay an awful price to win, and it wins, in effect, a Pyrrhic victory, you get a great deal of deterrence. You mentioned my book, Conventional Deterrence. The central theme in that book is that great powers start conventional wars when they can win, when they think they can win a quick and decisive victory. What you want to do with your conventional forces is convince the Chinese they cannot win a quick and decisive victory over the South China Sea, Taiwan, and the East China Sea. That's the conventional side of the story. Then there's the nuclear side of the story. Uh, all you have to do with regard to nuclear weapons is say that you have an arsenal of nuclear weapons, uh, some part of which are designed to fight a war in East Asia. And you want the Chinese to understand that you, they cannot be certain that nuclear weapons will not be used if you're losing the war. Uh, and you should make it clear to them that we understand, we Americans understand that you might use nuclear weapons if you're losing the war. But the mere whiff of possible nuclear use provides a huge amount of deterrence, right? So I think that nuclear deterrence combined with conventional deterrence, which you can develop, those two things go a long way towards preventing China from using force to change the status quo. And we want to remember here, Misha, it's not the United States that's talking about using military force to change the status quo. The United States wants to maintain the status quo in East Asia. It's the Chinese who are bent on changing the status quo. And as again, as I said to you before, I understand why they're doing this. I'm not 
you know, saying that their motives are evil. They have good security reasons and other reasons for wanting to change the status quo. But we want to prevent them from doing that. We want to maintain the status quo. And we need to do that with a combination of conventional and nuclear deterrence. And as I'm saying to you, I think that we can get a very effective deterrent force in place in East Asia and prevent a major war. Well, that's actually an optimistic point. It's a nice, optimistic way to, to sort of end uh, the the discussion um, because you're right. I think a lot there is a almost a sense of of uh, aggressive fatalism creeping into American rhetoric and thinking now, which is the fatalism that we probably can't prevent the Chinese from doing what they want, but aggressively we're going to sort of push it as far as we can. And and there is less talk. Uh, about deterrence and particularly about nuclear deterrence. I, I think you know we've lost the the muscle memory of of, of thinking nuclearly uh, as we did through the Cold War. We we certainly haven't been developing a new generation of nuclear experts since the end of the Cold War, and that is a new world, especially with the the report uh, that came out you know the last week or so that China is likely to triple, if not quadruple, its nuclear warhead, the number of its nuclear warheads. It's building three hundred new missile silos. It has a hypersonic rocket that is nuclear capable. We're back into uh, a Dr. Strange Lovian world, and we're, we haven't been thinking about it. So I think your nuclear point is one we, we absolutely have to return to. Um, before I let you go, though, uh, because you've been very generous with your time, but we, I do have to ask, we have to go back to the beginning and ask, how does a West Point graduate, the, the, the long gray line, wind up in the U.S. Air Force in the blue? Well, it's very important to understand that until 1947, the National Security Act of 1947, there was technically no independent Air Force. It was the Army Air Corps. So West Point provided officers to the Air Force and to uh, the Army. So there's a rich tradition there. In 1947, the Air Force is created, and the first graduating class from the Air Force Academy is in 1959. So up until 1959, West Point, and actually the Naval Academy as well, continued to provide officers for the Air Force. But after 1959, West Point slowly over the years turns off the spigot. When I graduate in 1970, you can go into the Air Force under three conditions. One is you were prior service in the Air Force. I was actually prior service in the Army. I was an enlisted man in the Army before I went to West Point. So I don't, I don't count there. Second, if your father is a retired Air Force officer, which was not true. And third, if your father is on active duty in the Air Force. Now, my father was actually in World War II in the Army Air Corps. And when he got out, he stayed in the reserves. And when the North Koreans captured the Pueblo, I think it was in 1968, right. President Johnson mobilized the reserves. And my father got mobilized. So I could say when I graduated in 1970, because of Kim Il-sung, that my father was on active duty in the Air Force, because he was. But it was really, the law was written to allow the children of permanently regular Air Force officers 
to go into the Air Force. But my father was on active duty in the Air Force. He was an active duty Air Force officer. So I could sign a piece of paper that legitimately said, you know, I qualified to go into the Air Force. That's great. So what was your what what was your specialty in the Air Force? What did you do for your years in five years? Mainly technical intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I worked uh, in the research and development community in the Air Force, first in space and missile systems, and then in electronic systems. In the research and development world in the Air Force at that time, there were three parts, space and missiles, aircraft, and electronics. And I was in two of the three, the, again, the electronics and the space and missiles. Were, were you out at uh, Wright-Patterson or where were you in Dayton? No, Wright, Wright, you pa- Wright-Patterson was where the aircraft R&D was. That was the one place I was not. California is basically where space and missile systems sure. were located. And the electronic systems were uh, in upstate New York, uh, Griffiths Air Force Base, and uh, Hanscom Air Force Base, which was in Massachusetts. Hanscom Air Force Base is where Electronic Systems Division was. Uh, well, that's great. Um, I, I wondered, because I know we've actually crossed paths doing some um, briefings for senior Air Force leaders in the past uh, together, and so I wondered if, if you had had an Air Force um, background. So that's, that's wonderful. Well, John, we've taken a lot of your time. It's been a really wide-ranging discussion, um, a little bit more theoretical sometimes than we get with our other guests, but that's exactly where I wanted it to be to sort of draw out the implications of your article and to um, to not not as much challenge your thinking, but to challenge a lot of the discussion that's out there on the nature of this, um, this competition, uh, as you put it, a, an intense security competition, a Cold War, uh, and one that is, if anything, what we'll see in a few hours uh, by the time this comes out, the meeting, the, the summit meeting between President Biden and General Secretary Xi Jinping will be over. We'll see if there are any breakthroughs. We doubt it. Uh, but it will certainly be both sides laying down some more markers for this competition going forward. So we hope we can have you back maybe to talk a little bit more about this nuclear side of things. Uh, but again, this this piece, The Inevitable Rivalry in Foreign Affairs, is uh, 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 an essay really worth the time of folks to read as, of course, uh, your books and, and the tragedy of great power politics. So on behalf of the absent John Yu, uh, I'm Misha Oslin, John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago. Thank you for joining us on the Pacific Century. It was my pleasure, Misha. So uh, I'm Misha Oslin, and we will see you next time on the Pacific Century. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.